Let's hit it. And welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about? Welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. If you enjoyed our opening music, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Door, and you can download it on any of your favorite platforms. For those of you that are new to Alzheimer's Speaks, we're about sound news, not just sound bites. And our goal is to raise all voices, big and small, from those diagnosed to those that care and serve them, to advocates, researchers, and more. I want to thank our listeners because without you, we would be nothing. And you have spread the word of our work all around the world. And for that, my gratitude just continues to roll out to you. I hope you continue to like, click, and share the information we have here on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. And we have a lot more at alzheimerspeaks.com. So check us out because together we will win this battle against dementia. Now, today's conversation is going to be about uh, Alzheimer's and dementia and artificial intelligence and some things that are going on with, with speech patterns. And I think it's going to be very, very interesting. But before I go there, I just want to, I want to give a shout out to uh, everybody with Lewy Body or who knows somebody with Lewy Body because it's Lewy Body Awareness Month in October. You might want to check out some of our past shows. We just talked with the crew of Determined, which is a a film, a documentary about dementia. They followed three families for quite a period of time. I think you'll find it fascinating. We also talked with Val from Australia, who talked about dementia and what it's like to live with. And we just had on Erin Blight, who wrote a book about caregiving as well. We've been doing these shows since 2011, so there's plenty to go back and listen to. We're getting anxious for our November 10th launch, which is just two weeks from today. And I want to ask you this. Do you think it's important for everyone at every stage and level to have the same access to dementia information? We do, and we want to support you. Don't miss our big rollout on November 10th. We'll be leveling the playing field. I always love giving a shout out to new programs and and, uh, what I learn about. So uh, Dementia Action Alliance is rolling out two new online programs. They say Zoom isn't just for meetings anymore. So there are free programs for people living at home with dementia, and there are free programs you can register for as well for people with dementia living in assisted living or or memory care. So go to daanow.org to find out further information on that. There's also a a neat project going on with the Vamoose Theater 
in uh, in the UK. And on Wednesdays, they're doing Wednesday Wave from three o'clock, and that's October 14th through December 16th. And you can find more information by going to vamostheater.co.uk. And then just click on the tab that goes to their arts in projects and you can learn more about that. Uh, let's see, I'll be facilitating a memory cafe for Arthur's Memory Cafe on the 28th at 1 p.m. Central Time. We meet on the second and fourth Wednesday of every month and anyone is welcome to join that is virtual. So just reach out to me for details. Also, I facilitate a group for artist senior living in Woodbury, Minnesota. It's called the Artist Way Memory Cafe. And they meet the third Wednesday of each month from one to two o'clock. And you can register with them by calling 612-200-0506. Coral Health is still giving away their apps for free during COVID. So if you go to coralhealth.com, that's C-O-R-O health.com. You can download Music First and Choral Faith. MDVIP is still allowing us to take their uh, brain health IQ test. And it's real simple. It's non-threatening. I took it. You can find out more information just by going to alzheimerspeaks.com on the homepage. And you'll, you'll find a link right there for that. And of course, the Memory Cafe directory. I love it. If you're looking for a Memory Cafe Dave now has five different countries that he's tracking. And uh, he's also noted which ones are virtual. So go to the memorycafedirectory.com for more information. And next we are going to hear from the Foot Bar Walker. And once we're done with that, we'll roll into our show. We'll be right back. Introducing the life-changing Foot Bar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Foot Bar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The Foot Bar Walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the foot bar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Foot Bar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Foot Bar Walker. Well, welcome back, everyone, to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I want to introduce you to my co-host today. I'm thrilled to have Michael Ellenbogen with us. Uh, Michael hasn't been on the show for a while, but he is and has been living with dementia for quite a while. So welcome, Michael. How are you doing today? Doing great, Lori. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you, especially on this show. So I want to introduce our guest today. Dr. Guillermo Checky received his education in physics from the University of La Plata in Argentina. He got his PhD in physics and biology from Rockefeller University. And then he got his postdoctoral fellow in imaging and psychiatry at Cornell University. He has been interested in diverse aspects of 
theoretical biology, including Brownian transport, molecular computation, spike reliability in neurons, song production, and the representation of songbirds, statistics of natural images and visual perception, statistics of natural language, and brain imaging. Now, if you're like me, you don't know what half of those things mean, but we'll try to find out today. Dr. Checky has also been with the IBM research team since 2001, where he works on computational approaches to brain function. In recent years, Dr. Checky has pioneered the use of computational linguistics approach to quantify psychiatric conditions from short speech samples, applying it successfully to conditions as diverse as schizophrenia, mania, drug, and alcohol intake. So welcome, Dr. Checky. How are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I'm excited to have this conversation, and I think our audience is going to be thrilled as well, because we're always looking for cutting-edge ways of you know, what's going on and how can we identify um, issues ahead of time when it comes to Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia. But before I get into my line of questioning, I would just like to ask you first, and I do this with every, uh, every one of my guests, is have you been personally touched in your own family or circle of friends uh, by dementia? Uh, yes, uh, friends and extended family, but in particular, uh, starting around one year and a half ago or so, my father, who is uh, turning 86 uh, next month, started to develop uh, symptoms, clear symptoms. And uh, this year, he's in Argentina, so this year, right before the lockdown due to COVID, I was able to fly there. We took him to the neurologist and uh, you know, it was very clear that he was severely impaired. And so he started to do some treatment that improved a little bit, at least his um, emotional uh, uh, stability. Uh, that it's been uh, very tough on the family, for me being uh, so far away uh, and in, in the middle of the lockdown. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's really personal. Uh, for me. Okay, great. And Michael, if you want to just tell people a little bit about how dementia has touched you, that would be helpful as well. I was originally a manager for a Fortune 500 company. Uh, I ended up uh, have to uh, leaving work uh, due to my dementia. Uh, I was forced into retirement. And uh, sadly, I, I missed that. Uh, I, I was in the technology world myself. And uh, as they used to say, I was on the bleeding edge of technology. Uh, so I, I really had a high interest in that. And uh, that, that's what brings me actually to the show today. And uh, today I spend my time being an international dementia advocate, trying to bring change to the world uh, for this particular cause. Great. And Michael has accomplished so many things. Um, that would be a, probably a show and a half <laughs> all by itself in terms of his uh, ability to connect and, and make change around the world. Now, Dr. Checky, can you tell us a little bit about the study you're doing and how it's different from other studies in terms of predicting Alzheimer's disease and, and how you're using um, artificial intelligence to do that? 
Uh, yes, so uh, this is a study that uh, was possible thanks to the work that uh, has been done by the Framingham Heart Study that, uh, as the name indicates, uh, originally was uh, designed to uh, follow over years uh, a population uh, in the town of Framingham in Massachusetts uh, for you know general uh, uh, clinical status focus on the heart, but uh, early on they decided to include an analysis of uh, the participants in the study that includes close to yearly uh, evaluations, um, cognitive impairment, and this has been going on for decades. So in the study we have a large number of people who reach uh, you know, elderly years, and some of them, uh, of course, develop uh, early impairment, and then uh, some of them were actually diagnosed with Alzheimer's. As part of the uh, assessment conducted in the, the study, uh, there is a, a language probe, and that is a really, you know, very simple, Seemingly simple, you know, when our mind is in good state, language is very simple for us, that as we know, is an extremely complex process. Uh, so that uh, language sample involves uh, asking the participants to describe a picture that is a, like a cartoon. As you see the cartoon, you can see that this was uh, developed in the 40s and 50s because it's a very typical American scene of uh, presumably a mother and children in the kitchen. That task might be uh, a spoken task. So the participant uh, speaks about what uh, they see in the picture or, or written, right? Uh, so just write down uh, what's in the picture. So that's the setting of the study. And the, what we decided to do inspired by a significant amount of work in the field of the effect of the mentioned language, which is obvious, but also work that we have done in other uh, conditions showing that uh, language, again, it's almost obvious that language is uh, uh, an incredible tool to uh, understand the, the, the mental health status of a person. We said, well, how much information is present in those relatively little simple uh, language samples? And can we use that to predict outcomes? Right? Can we say something about the progression uh, of uh, this person over the years uh, in terms of, of dementia? So what we did uh, was to take uh, those samples and we take one sample per subject when they are considered to be cognitively healthy by the neurologists, by the evaluators, and use that to ask the question, can we, that, can we predict that this person will develop Alzheimer's before the age of 85 or after the age of 35 or never, right? So the, the, the binary distinction is Alzheimer's before 85 or never or after, right? Um, and we, used, we did that for several reasons, but 
um, in terms of what is that we did. So we took that description that the individual uh, uh, did uh, at the time of the assessment when they were considered guilty and uh, collect a, a number of different alterations or distortions with respect to uh, what a person that is completely healthy uh, would do and describe in this picture. And uh, based on that, we were able to predict uh, this uh, boundary, whether you know, this particular person developed, let's say, uh, early AD or late AD with a precision of called area under the curve of 74, 18 to 74 percent, where if you just flip a point, you get uh, 50, right? And that is a very significant, statistically, a very significant uh, accuracy at predicting uh, that uh, possibility of conversion. And what is what we find relevant is that we are talking about something that takes a few minutes, two, three, you know, five minutes at most to do. And again, we are not doing anything in terms of collecting a huge amount of information about the person. This is essentially you know, how that person performed that task. And the value of what we are doing is not in the fact that you know, we can predict Alzheimer because you know, if we don't have any treatment, yeah, that might be helpful. What we think is the main value is the fact that we are showing that this very simple task is providing a wealth of information that is a task that we can repeat, right? That we can, you know, changing what needs to be changed, we can do you know, weekly, even daily, and keep track of the progression of that person towards dementia, away from dementia, understand whether any treatment, any change in the condition, in, in, the, in, the, in the living condition, in the patterns of behavior, exercising, uh, food, whatever that has an effect, that we don't need to wait a few years to, to see. We can have an inkling right away with something that is very simple and can be delivered. I just want to summarize and make sure that I, I track this. So basically, you, you're tracking people, having them take a, a basically a short kind of little test, either written or verbal, when you give them a picture and you ask them to describe that picture then. And then based on the words that they use, that's what you're analyzing um, cognitive changes with. That sounds fascinating. Right now, do you know about how many people are in your trial and how often do they take the test? Well, this is, uh, we're not conducting this trial now. So the Framingham study keeps going on. We took a section uh, of this study that included people who reached the age of 35. Right? Um, and that's, uh, we have uh, around 700 samples. And uh, what we call the gold standard is uh, a number of samples that we set apart, we never touched, and we used to validate our models, and those are uh, 80 samples, right? So 80 people whose uh, status 
at uh, the age of 35 in terms of having AD or not was clinically validated with the stricter standards. So that's the size of, of uh, the sample that we use for learning our models and for testing independently our model. The Framingham study keeps going and that's it's uh, and the, the auspices of Boston University. Uh, we are involved in other clinical trials at the moment, not uh, on AD, but we have a clinical trial, for instance, on uh, uh, ALS, where we are doing exactly the same thing and, and developing models that are predictive specifically for, for ALS, but the approach is very similar. Okay. Michael, do you have any questions for Dr. Checky? I would be curious to know how diverse is the population that you are using and how do you also take into account the educational aspect of that population? Because I would feel mm -hmm. depending on what level of education yeah. somebody has, yeah. that might have a huge influence yeah. on how they respond. The population is it, limited to uh, the inhabitants of Framingham. So, you know, this is one limitation of our study that we would like to see this in a, a much wider cross-section of the population uh, in the U.S. at least. But regarding inside the, the, the Framingham cohort, uh, we balance the number of men and women and the number of people with uh, different degrees of education. What we see, of course, is that people with more education uh, tend to convert less, right? So the, the education seems to be uh, a way of stemming the development of dementia. And uh, we see that, uh, we see some differences in how well we can predict one population over the other, but for the purpose of this study, we, we try to balance gender and education within the confines of this cohort that is limited, right? So it's one particular town in, in Massachusetts. But, but yes, yeah, so there is, there is a gender effect, right? So, uh, and there is obviously uh, an educational effect that, that uh, is, very, uh, is very clear. Uh, but in, again, in our study, we balance that. So there's, there's no bias towards one or, or the other in our model, right? But our model is limited uh, in terms of, for instance, ethnicity, right? So that, that would be something that, that we need to account for uh, in larger studies. I would think education too would have, um, could have an effect um, more on, and I guess I'm coming from the angle of people having the ability to cover up um, maybe the missteps that are going on in their brain. Yeah. They've got more, more to choose yes. from. Um, but yet when I've talked with people, you know, at, at all levels of education, they still notice the difference, but it's yeah. the ability to adapt and yeah. adjust and have other, other words in this case. To exactly. And, and, you know, uh, Lori, this is why we think that the, the real application of what we are developing is precisely in longitudinal trials, but we can track the evolution, the progression of, of the person. That's what we see in, in these studies, for instance, on uh, ALS, that we, we are collecting weekly samples 
And of course, you know, now you have the baseline for the person. And so if you have someone who's highly educated and you, you start looking at them, let's say when they're healthier, then you can tracking the, the, the change is, is easier, right? Because you, you, know, you have already a baseline for the individual. Well, and not to get political, but I'm, I'm going to bring this up because I remember seeing um, a few comments um, in terms of even uh, Donald Trump. People were saying they could see a difference in his pattern of speech. They went back and analyzed it. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it makes sense from what you're saying. And I'm not uh, saying he's got dementia or anything else, no. but mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, they saw a significant change in his in his, you know, ability to um, choose his words were were very different than what they might have been maybe 20 years ago. Obviously, uh, uh, you know, people have done studies on famous uh, people. Uh, uh, there is the case of, uh, if I recall correctly, his name is Iris Murdoch, who's a novelist and and developed uh, late in life. Alzheimer's and, and there are studies showing that you could track that in her writing. More generally, I would say in the case of, of, of the president, this is a, a truism, right? So language reflects so much about who we are and how we, you know, how we are feeling at the moment that of course, you know, this is, this is something that we use almost unconsciously when we are interacting with each other, right? So the only thing that we are doing is trying to wrap around an algorithm that will give some consistent results, right? That are still our, our paid reflection of what our mind does when we are speaking uh, with other people, right? Um, so, you know, stress, so, you know, the president must be stressed, you know, might be anger, angry, or, or, or you know, they are all this, the behavioral context of a person is always reflected uh, in the way we speak, unless you are a very well-trained actor, but even I think for actors, it might be difficult sometimes. Right? So it, it's no wonder that, that there are changes, whether those changes are associated with uh, dementia, we don't know, because, you know, I have to say also that we uh, are not have not shown to what extent the markers that we identify are exclusive to dementia and in particular exclusive to Alzheimer's. Uh, so there are things that we think are are very specific, but they, we are picking up things that we see across other conditions. So one of the features that we identify is, is repetitions of people. Uh, tend to repeat things, and and, though, and and that is a is a marker of of you know likelihood of eventual conversion to Alzheimer's. We see that in many other conditions. We see that in Parkinson's. We see that in in people experiencing psychosis. So uh, because again, language is is uh, so complex and and so essential for our behavior, right? So it, it's the, the foundation of society that, but it's, and it's also so demanding competitionally that any small alteration will immediately be reflected. So yes, it's no wonder that in particular uh, people in positions of power 
presidency holds the stress that they are subject to will leave a, a signature in the way they're speaking, of course. So that's, sorry, that was a very long answer. <laughs> no, no, and that, and that makes sense. I'm glad that you pointed out the emotional state somebody's in is gonna affect you know, their speech pattern and things too. Uh, I think that that's very critical or it, their confidence it, level, depending who they're around, um, you know, may change it as well. So, I you know, listen, in my case, you know, my, my spoken English is possible now. However, if I'm playing soccer, as you know, being from Argentina, I have to play soccer, my level of English goes to the floor because, you know, <laughs> It's not, you know, I don't have enough bandwidth to play and have a flawed expression in English, right? So that happens to all of us. Michael, I want to ask you if you've noticed, you know, any change in your speaking patterns or writing patterns. I believe that my speaking pattern has changed. And I definitely know my writing pattern has changed because I, I have trouble even doing a sign my own signature anymore i mean it used to be very consistent but now when i do a signature it's not consistent at all in fact sometimes i look at it and it's like is this really me writing this uh so uh th there's no doubt about it that 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 has changed uh and it continues to change as as i progress uh from a speaking standpoint i would have to say I use words that I didn't use before, or I put words in place that I'm filling in a gap, not using the right word, but I just come up with something to fill a gap for a word that I would have used. And it might be the wrong word, but I, you know, and, and I don't even realize I do these things at, at times. Uh, and my wife tells me that. So, uh, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of delay factor in, in in my processing where in the past it would come out real quickly and smooth, but now there's a lot of delay in between words uh, as I try to get my thought process together. Thank you. One of the things I would love you to share because I was fascinated, Michael does a lot of speeches and he, the way you design your speeches and the colors and the size of the words and the whole nine yards, I wouldn't be able to read it because I would be so distracted. But he gets up on that stage and he's, you know, it just flows. But he has adapted by, by making some changes. Can you share kind of some of the things that you've done um, in order to be able to, to read it smoothly for yourself? Yes, it's very strange. I used to be able to read really good. And uh, what I realized over time as I progressed with this disease, I no longer could read what was on paper because as I focused to try to process the information, it would all twist and turn on me. I, I just couldn't stay focused on it. So what I learned to do is to go to like an 18 or 20 inch font and the way I would read it is how I started putting spaces in between the words I would actually put four or five words together and then put a big gap between the words to start the next word and I would have to do that throughout the whole document 
And the spacing might not be spaces where comments were at, but they would just be spaces. And that allowed me to be able to focus and be able to read my own writing or anybody else's writing. Uh, Because the minute I would read for, I'd say, a half a minute to two minutes, if it was all together, I would lose track of where I was at. And again, it, it was so weird because the writing that I would actually be looking at would just... It, it, when I visually look at it, it was turning on me I and I'd lose track of focusing uh, and I couldn't focus on it. So this is what I had to do to accommodate, uh, to be able to read and to uh, do my speeches. And it, it's worked very good. Uh, I will tell you this, nowadays, even with that, it's getting to be harder for me to stay focused. Used colors for certain words, if I remember correctly, too, and I don't know if that was keys for you to, you know, enunciate those or put a little emotion behind them. But um, it was fast. It was really fascinating to see that. So I really appreciate you sharing that with me and now sharing that with with the audience. I, I think there's so many undetected things that happen um, during this disease, and as humans, we're we're always trying to adapt and fit in and make things work, and then there becomes this point where you know, with, with any type of dementia where you just can't cover it up anymore. You, 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 there's no more ways that you know how to, how to adapt. So I find it fascinating that, you know, through language, um, that that might be a key element to be able to project what's, what's happening, uh, you know, on a, on a slow basis. I think of Michael, how long it took you to get diagnosed. And then how many times it's been changed in terms of what they think you have. Um, my mom, you know, it was 10 years before she got diagnosed. She lived with it for 30 years and, you know, and, and she's been gone six. So that's a long, long time ago when, when few people were, were talking about this, but she recognized the changes, but of course, didn't want to necessarily share that with everybody because she was embarrassed and she didn't know what, what the cause was and, you know, but she was like terrified of losing her job. And so she had everything written out in case she, she missed a beat. But now that, you know, Dr. Checky, you're talking about these speech patterns. Um, and now that I look back, I mean, I can see that being very evident, but nothing that really ticked me in the head going, hmm, something's going on at that level. I just, I, I, I didn't, I didn't correlate the speech. I correlated probably how she did or didn't do tasks anymore or level of involvement, you know, those types of things. Um, I was looking at more of those patterns, I think, than, than consciously looking at, at speech. Um, do you find that kind of normal out there that, you know, speech is something that is overlooked? Well, I, I don't think it's overlooked um, by neurologists and psychiatrists. I think it's, it's overlooked by, you know, I wear two hats, right? So one is a AI computer scientist. It is ignored uh, by computer scientists. Uh, and you know, the field of mental health care and research ignores the things that we can do with computer science because, of course, they don't have the bandwidth, the time, right? So you have to see patients and you know, why would that that you know, neurologists, psychiatrists, case workers, they use that. They use that in, in, 
the daily practice, uh, what we are trying to do here is to connect the two worlds. So as we speak, you know, in your smartphone and in my iPad, there are all these algorithms analyzing whether you prefer to uh, drink uh, uh, Coke or Pepsi. Uh, and you know, there are millions of psychiatric interviews, you know, neurology interviews per year. Actually, there's more than 63 million such interviews per year only in the US, according to the CBC. And none of them are is analyzed with tools that we have readily available and running in our smartphone. Uh, so in that sense, it's being ignored. So it's not being ignored in the practice because it's essential. So if you want to evaluate uh, someone for uh, cognitive impairment or for depression or for schizophrenia, you use language. Uh, uh, what's been ignored is the, the, the power that we have in, you know, at our fingertips in, in, in our computers to take that information and try to systematize it, to generalize it, right? So again, it's imperfect in many ways, there is so much we can do, right? And, and this is what's been ignored. That link in, in between what we what we do uh, as mental health care practitioners and what we can do as computer scientists. When you're doing these studies, or in the past, did they look at like high risk patients, maybe uh, maybe children of parents who had dementia, or did they look into, you know, did anybody have the gene or was it broader than that? Well, not in, in the cohort that we use here, um, but uh, I know that there are many studies in, in familial uh, AD. And in that case, yeah, the, the ability to predict outcomes, of course, is, is much better. And now there are new biomarkers, neurofilament light, for instance, that have uh, shown a very good uh, success at you know, uh, diagnosing and also predictive outcomes. But not uh, in, in our study, unrelated, somewhat related to this, we've been studying population of uh, patients with Huntington's disease, which is absolutely determined genetically. Uh, so that's rather extreme. So, uh, uh, we, we've been studying imaging, but we're also studying language uh, patterns in them. And, and in that case, you can see a very strong correlation between genetic load and, and language patterns in particular, but not in the major in general, because you know, familial AD is a very small percentage of, of the uh, dementia population. So sure. it's not very easy to find a good connection, a good genetic connection. Okay. Well, and then to get people involved in clinical trials isn't easy to begin with. And then you make your pool even smaller, right. Um, right. makes it tough. How about, um, one of the things I'm wondering about is cultural diversity in terms of the testing itself. Um, because I think, you know, yeah. I, I, I've heard many times that that can have a huge impact in terms of someone's response. If it's not something they're familiar with, you know, they're yeah. going to be more, more limited. You know, if you if you gave me something in, you know, um, maybe the, the Hmong culture or whatever, I I probably wouldn't have a clue, you know, what something was or to try to find the words for that. And so I'm wondering if that's come into play or would maybe in in future studies. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and again, if you see the picture, the, it's called the cookie step picture. 
it's something that I was I was telling someone I you know was discussing with someone so when I brought my son who's 16 years old and I showed that picture and he was laughing because it looks like a, a scene from I Love Lucy right so of course you know it, it's something that that absolutely needs to be considered and actually in in the other clinical studies that we're conducting with hospitals, we are not using the cookie test that's because it's something that really is it, it, out of place culturally. At the same time, there is a challenge. How much specific should you go, right? As opposed to, oh, well, can we do this in, a, in, in the uh, most natural way, right? So that precisely is an area of active research for us. So we are exploring different prompts. We are exploring uh, things that are, are very universal. So we have a study on Parkinson's where we ask the, the participants to talk about a typical day in their life. But the short answer to your question is yes, of course. And it would be easier for us to account for that if we have large, very large samples and diverse. But the truth is that we don't have that much. And in particular for a neurodegenerative disease like dementia, that is not so easy because you need to follow the population over many, many years, right? And this is something that is unique about the Framingham study. Um, so the challenge is how to balance size of the sample, burden on the, on the, uh, on the side of the participant, et cetera. But again, the short line, the, the short answer to your question is yes, of course, the culture background matters significantly. And for us, this is an area of, of research, you know, how to design the base probe, right, and adapt it to the individual. And, and even with trying to be culturally diverse, um, you know, some people's span is so much broader than others. Some is very limited in their really, you know, specifically into their culture, their language, their routines and stuff. And, and you know, we're just so mixed these days that there's yeah. so many levels of that too exactly. that, I think, that I think complicated. Michael, I believe you had a question. Yeah, I do. Uh, th this is very interesting. I'm wondering if you could go into a little bit more depth in reference to what your programming actually focuses on. Is it the context of the words that they use? Is it the delay factor in their processing of how they speak? Or is it a combination of all? And how exactly are you using the AI function to filter through all that, to figure that out. Yeah, it's interesting. For the study that we just published, we use the written version uh, because unfortunately, there are not that many recordings spanning decades, right? And, and the recordings that they are there, the quality is not really good. So we focus on the written version. However, uh, there is another repository that is not longitudinal in the sense that Framingham is, and it comes from uh, spoken versions of the test, and they have attached uh, the clinical evaluation of the cognitive uh, status. So why I mentioned that is because we use that one in order to filter down the most relevant features, and then we use Framingham to train uh, our models, and then or the, uh, the gold standard that we use to test. So what are the features? Well, uh, we, this is where AI comes in. Uh, uh, we use 
a huge number initially, a huge number of features coming from what's called natural language processing. So you can take a sentence, uh, uh, identify this, the syntax tree, that's something that we all do in, in school, right? Take properties of that syntax tree that uh, will approximate, let's say, the, the the logical complexity behind the sentence. So a simple sentence, so what we call telegraphic speech, that's one of the features. In that in telegraphic speech, people will say, uh, describing the picture, a uh, boy, a uh, woman, dishes, uh, water flowing, right? And that we telegraphic speech. So doing the automated uh, syntax parsing uh, will give you uh, information about whether that tree is what is expected when someone is, is, is in, in full control of cognitive capabilities or there is some impairment. Another important feature, as, as you mentioned, Michael, is that's because that's about the structure. So what's the content? So, and for that, we use uh, a technique that is called semantic embedding that allows you to uh, estimate uh, the similarity in meaning between two words, right? And this is based on, on training on very large data sets. Uh, but you can think of it as formalizing the context of, of a dictionary, right? So if I go to the entry for, for chair, it's very likely that in that entry, I will find the word table, or maybe I find the word, and then I go to that entry, and then I will find table. If I want to repeat that, for black hole, it will take me a lot of jumping through the dictionary uh, to go from chair to black hole. So that distance is a way of measuring with numbers whether two words are semantically related. So we, we do that with the items and the actions that normally people would describe in the picture, right? So there is a boy likely the son, and there is a woman, likely the mother, uh, there is a girl, likely the daughter. So if you mention son, daughter, mother, you're really specific. If you say someone doing the dishes and someone reaching cookie, then you're less specific and we can measure that. If you're missing an item, then we can also measure that. So that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect is, like I said, there are things that we learn from other conditions of so repetitions. We know that they're very important. Right? So we can measure, are these people, are these people repeating things? Do they mention boy and boy again? And then there are things that are a bit more prosaic, but they are very powerful and uh, uh, we can uh, identify misspelling, uh, orthog orthographic errors, just grammatical errors. Again, using uh, established techniques in natural language processing. And then what we do is, is the other part of AI is, well, we can combine all of that. So it's not that repeating a word is a sign of, of uh, impending dementia, but it contributes a little bit. So the other part of AI is, well, how do you combine a little bit of information here and here and here and here and here in order to predict something that it's expressed a little bit in all of these features, right? So that's the other part where AI comes in. So it's so that's the whole process that we have. So create a large number of features related to 
structure and content of language, uh, reduce the number of dimensions using a data set that is very similar to this one, and then learning that model uh, on the data set that we, we care about. And the AI comes through all those steps. Right, thank you. Michael, did that answer your question? Yes, it did, thanks. Wonderful. Doctor, I'm wondering if you can tell us where you see technology going in the future and do you see doing another study, maybe going a little bit even more in depth regarding the linguistics and Alzheimer's disease or other um, neurodegenerative illnesses? Absolutely. So one thing that Michael was saying, one thing that we want to include in particular for, for dementia is is voice. Right? So we know the voice has a huge amount of information uh, for dementia. And you know, I can point to some other studies, not predictive studies, but uh, let's call cross-sectional studies, uh, identifying if someone has dementia as opposed to uh, uh, not using voice features. That in terms of, like I said, uh, specifically on, uh, in terms of dementia, we are uh, uh, pursuing a, a, a few uh, collaborations to uh, extend uh, our analysis of Alzheimer's, like I said, using, using voice, uh, using, uh, and using probes, as we discussed before, probes that are more up-to-date and, and, and understanding where are the best probes, but on a, on a much more frequent basis. Uh, that's, uh, like I said, something that we are already doing with ALA. For Alzheimer's, what we are doing also, this in a number of other conditions. Uh, I mentioned schizophrenia. That's something that we're doing now and, and similarly trying to predict outcomes in populations that are at risk of uh, developing schizophrenia. We're studying chronic pain uh, and how people uh, change their perception of their chronic pain. The future is to bring AI to the daily practice of mental health care. So what I would like to do and, and people in my group would like to do uh, as a dream is that these tools are readily available for the neurologists or psychiatrists in their office, for patients and for family members to, you know, pick up the phone, the phone and have a conversation with grandma and immediately have an idea of, you know, whether she uh, is better than yesterday or worse than yesterday. So I think the possibilities of you know, extending the reach outside of the clinic, what the neurologists, psychiatrists, or, or you know, a caregiver can do using technology, that is the future. But you know, it's not the future 10 years from now. This is something that we can do now. Right? Uh, so if we, if we align the stars correctly, it's something that we can do now. I'm wondering in terms of doing the, the study, if this has to be in person or can you do this over a Zoom can. and kind of you record? Can. Again, it's not the same. Of course, it's not the same because the way we interact in Zoom is not the way that we interact in person or on the phone for the type of thing that we saw in this study. I think that there is no real difference, right? Uh, and, and again, you, you can do it remotely, you can do it daily, you can, you can embed it in things that 
will not be burdensome or, or boring. So that's, yeah, the short answer is yes. Um, Michael, you have a comment? I, I have to tell you, this really fascinates me w- with what you're doing, but I don't know if you include people with dementia as part of your process to help your engineers and yourself to figure things out. And I'm going to throw something at you that you may not have thought about. And I can tell you, my doctors are clueless to to some of these things. When I do my testing, the environment that I'm in has a huge impact on what those tests performed or the results are given. For example, if I hear the air conditioner in the background with just the slightest noise, that throws me off. Or if there's something in the background that I see that's getting my attention, that throws things off drastically. So how does your testing accommodate for those kind of things that you don't actually see mm-hmm. or hear as you're performing these tests? Uh, that's a very good point, Michael. And I can assure you that we have seen it not so much in, in dementia, but we see it in an ongoing clinical study that what people say at home and what people say in the clinic can be very different. Uh, the, you know, how do we accommodate for that? Well, that's part of what we're trying to understand. But uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, that's absolutely the case. And, and you're saying, and I take your word for it because, you know, you know more about this than as it might be the case for dementia, it's even worse for for other conditions that, that for instance, are, are, are related to mood disorders. Of course, the context. If you see uh, an old man in a white coat, he will not talk the same. Uh, if you are recording a, a voice sample at home by yourself, finding the reach to home and the natural environment of a person is something that we can do now and, and you know, we are beginning to face this issue, but I completely agree with you because we've seen it. We've seen it uh, uh, in our own data. You know, I think it would be interesting because, you know, I thought that was an excellent question, Michael. You know, everybody reacts to things differently and what might trigger you might calm somebody else down. So one of the things that would be really interesting to do, especially if you start doing some of this stuff online, would be to have different backgrounds in terms of if there was a clinician with them and just ask them, you know, before the study even starts, which one is most comfortable yeah. to you yeah. and, and have a variety of that you might be able to get some interesting data of just all by itself. But then if, if this would happen to be online and they were talking with a, a clinician, clinician doing this study, then that virtual background is behind that person. Now, again, at home, you can't control it. I mean, life might be fine. And then the grandkids come over and, you know, everything's wild and crazy or the doorbell rings or the dog starts barking. I mean, all of those types of things can still come into play, but at least it's in their environment. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think just even visually, because I've heard that from others, they can get really distracted in terms of what's going on. I've heard that many times just through Zoom. People like having, for example, the informal settings of people's homes 
but yet sometimes they get distracted at what, what is that that's in that room or what's on that shelf or, you know, what were they thinking, <laughs> you know, or don't they know their cabinet doors open or, I mean, they, they just start going off in that direction. And so, um, you know, for me, I've, I've just done a plain virtual background and yet sometimes I don't use it because it makes people, it, it makes people think mm -hmm. it's too formal of a setting when it needs to be a more comfortable setting too. So, um, and again, I, I've heard lots of different feedback on that. So I think that, you know, if you do go online with something like this, that would be important. If there's going to be an interaction with a clinician, if it's more of an app where they just hop on and they take this test and, you know, the data gets shooted to you, you know, that's a whole nother, a whole nother ball of wax there too then. But and you know, Laurie, COVID has made this even more urgent, right? So again, talking about personal, my mother hesitates to bring my father to the hospital because of COVID, right? So this is already happening, right? It's taking place. The use of technology and Zoom or phone or whatever to reach, to reach the patients because you don't want to go to the hospital if you can avoid it. Exactly. Michael, any other questions you have? Uh, not at this time. Okay. Uh, Dr. Checky, is there anything that we haven't covered that we should? I think we, we have covered the, uh, the main topic. Okay. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Uh, this was a fascinating conversation, and I think our audience will find it uh, that way as well. Just in terms of looking at, at speech uh, very differently than, than what they have in the past. Now, if you want more information about IBM research, you can go to their blog at ibm.com forward slash blogs, plural, forward slash research, or you can just do the at sign with IBM research and typically find them on social media. I know you're on Twitter for sure. So again, thank you so much for joining us today. And for our listeners, you know, you can always go to alzheimerspeaks.com. That's our main website. We have lots of resources and tools and go ahead and, and like, and subscribe, follow us so that you don't miss out on any of these fascinating conversations that we have. Michael, again, thank you. Dr. Checky, again, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you both. Uh, thank it was you. an honor for me. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the way showers who will help your journey a lot easier.